The Great Book, a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and we are doing a three for today. We have editor Tom Tobin and also reporter Colleen Wright. We're all here to talk about the latest issues going on. Welcome, Colleen and Tom. How are things today? I'm great. Uh, doing good. I, we have. Um, I've been working with Colleen this week on a story that out of St. Petersburg about Campbell Park Elementary. Colleen's been covering that very closely about a uh, principal, Christine Hoffman, who um, had an interesting email to her staff uh, uh, this week, or last week rather, uh, where she was in the process of setting classrooms uh, rosters for next year. A fairly normal, routine process in schools, but uh, it took an unusual turn. Colleen, you want to tell us what happened at Campbell Park Elementary? Sure. First, uh, thanks, Jeff and Tom, for having me. And it's been a very busy week. So this email came out April 18th, last Tuesday, and um, it pretty much has it's like a bullet bulleted list of what classroom rosters should look like for the next year. And on that list were some pretty basic things you would see in schools like um, have an equal you know ratio of boys to girls, uh, you know, do a mix of reading levels, you know, some high, some low and some in the middle. Um, you know, don't put any more than two. Uh, you know, kids with discipline issues. And then another bullet point was white students should be in the same class. Now, there was no context here, no explanation as to why, but that email was forwarded to the uh, NAACP state conference, and then it was bumped back down to the local branch um, of the NAACP, and there was an uproar. And, you know, parents... Uh, in Campbell Park and outside of Campbell Park called for, uh, you know, Ms. Hoffman's resignation. And this week we actually learned that, uh, she requested a transfer out into administrative offices, uh, until, uh, an investigation is complete. But, uh, the school district tells us that she will not be returning to Campbell Park at all, even after the investigation. Colleen, I just want to mention, though, that the school is mostly black students, right? Uh, yes, it is uh, predominantly black. Uh, Campbell Park is one of the schools that was featured in the Times Failure Factory series of, um, you know, five predominantly black schools in South St. Pete, you know, who have a track record of really poor academic performance. And, um, you know, there, there are kids of other races at that school. Our numbers from October say it's something like 40, 49 white students at the school, then like 18 or so Hispanics and three Asian students. Um, I think those numbers are, are less now. I, I think uh, they're down since October. It's a transient population there. But still, it makes no mention of any other races. And, and again, there's no reason as to why she put this directive out. Um, when parents met with her, they asked, well, is there a problem? Or, or white, you know, are, are white students being bullied by black students? Is there uh, an issue here? You know, have white parents complained? And Hoffman said no to all of those answers or all of those questions. Um, so really, we, we still don't have a clear, you know, we really don't have a clear reason as to why she put this out. I guess we should say that uh, we, we looked at uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, uh, uh, and in that law, it says that um, it prohibits schools from segregating students on the base of race, color, or national origin in making classroom assignments. 
So this is not something that just hits people wrong on a gut level. It's actually a, a legal requirement that you can't uh, segregate or, or think about race when you, you set classes like this. I can only imagine that this would not happen if it were in the other foot and you had a handful of black students in a white school or a predominantly white school. Have you seen in other parts of Pinellas County that this type of thing happens over and over again? Uh, you know, Jeff, you raise a good point there, because either way, even if the shoe is on the wrong foot, it's it's still illegal, right? And I asked the school district, you know, is this your common practice? Do you do this? Do you try to cluster, you know, kids together of the same race when they're in the minority? And their answer was, no, this is not practice. We do not do this. So it's anyone's guess if it does happen or if it doesn't. But clearly at Campbell Park, you know, again, we're unclear if this has happened in the past at Campbell Park or if this is a new practice. You know, we're not sure. Colleen, you, you were at the school this week. There were some meetings between parents and the, and the principal, parents and the staff. What You talked to some parents afterwards. What did they have to say about the whole situation? They um, were, were pretty damning. Um, they, they, you know, called for her complete resignation that she should be fired from the school district um, because, you know, it's kind of like as it is, that school's gone through a lot. It's been through some, you know, heavy reform, you know, teacher turnover, all of that. And, and they just saw that this was unnecessary. And also, you know, it's, you know, it was interesting. I spoke, you know, with a, with a woman who was Hispanic and her children were Hispanic. And she was like, I didn't get that at all. And she said that her son said, like, why is she pointing out our races? You know, it, it just, it didn't make sense. Um, you know, I, I've had, I have had calls of, you know, parents, you know, white parents saying, well, maybe they're just trying to protect the white kids. But we, again, have no evidence that, you know, these white kids are being antagonized by black students. None of that has been brought to light. There, there's no evidence that that's happening. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions here. As far as we know, Christine Hoffman still has a job. She's still being paid um, at the district administration uh, offices in Largo. And where she lands next is anybody's guess. Has the superintendent or school board done anything at all to say this is a practice that will be stopped or have they done any sort of action? Well, you know, as I said, uh, Hoffman is under investigation, but uh, Superintendent Grego, Mike Grego, actually uh, spoke out for the first time since the incident on Tuesday at the board meeting, so exactly a week after the original email was sent. And, uh, you know, he, you know, he didn't address the racial issue of it, uh, you know, head on, but he did say, quote, we did not need to have a further distraction with Campbell Park. Uh, especially during, you know, FSA testing, you know, season, the, the school is deep into testing there and they just didn't want to have, uh, you know, another distraction, really a media circus outside. Um, and that makes sense because of course, Campbell Park is under the gun to get its test scores and school grade up. You know, the consequences of this uh, for the principal seemed to get uh, worse as the days went on. I think first they talked about having her do a corrective action plan. I'm not sure exactly what that is. And then um, now they said uh, Tuesday, they clarified uh, Tuesday that she will be the subject of an investigation by the Office of Professional Standards. So the district seems to be taking this uh, uh, very seriously uh, as as this goes on. Well, the school district also uh, has a lot going on, especially in terms of you know racial tensions. Um, you know, Pinellas County Schools is the subject of a you know their they're the defendants in a state lawsuit that alleges that, you know, uh, black students haven't been given a fair shake. Uh, a federal lawsuit that says that, you know, black students just aren't getting the same amount of resources as white students had, uh, have had in Pinellas County. Um, they have like at least two office, uh, U.S. Department of Education, so federal office, uh, um, 
for civil rights uh, complaints opened against the school district for um, systemic racism. At least two is what I was told. Um, so, you know, th- this school district has kind of a track record of, you know, being under fire for, for systemic racism. And so, you know, it's what happened, you know, with Ms. Hoffman's email is just not a good look for them. And I think they're, you know, uh, everybody kind of, when I mean everybody, is, uh, the Pinellas County School Board members, you know, thanked Dr. Grego and uh, Hoffman's supervisor and area superintendent, Pat Wright, you know, for their swift action. And I think they just really all want to move on at this point. Do they have a new principal? The assistant principal there is now the acting principal, and she's also getting help from um, uh, an employee in the school district's transformation zone team. She'll be having an office there, too, to help uh, you know the acting principal out for the remainder of the year. Uh, who the permanent principal might be, we don't know. We thought that maybe going into the school board meeting, they might have a replacement, since right around now is the changing of the principals, and you know principals get reassigned, but we haven't heard anything just yet. I kind of wonder if they're going to pick a principal based on race after this issue, which is all about race. Uh, it's very possible, and that, and that brings up a good point. Um, Christine Hoffman is white. Um, she is white. She said in an apology letter um, that was sent home to parents on Friday um, that she is a white woman in a predominantly black school and that she's taking this as a learning opportunity. Um, but what's interesting is, is that uh, Christine Hoffman was promoted to principal this year. She was an assistant principal at the school since 2012. And before that, she was at Maximo Elementary, not so far away, which was another school highlighted in the Failure Factory series. So she's worked in low-income, predominantly black schools before, and that's what makes this all the more shocking. I've been thinking about the staff at this school as this has been progressing. You know, there must have been some ill feeling on the part of the faculty there because this, this was an internal memo. This was just a, an email to the staff, but it was, it was leaked to the NAACP. So someone on the staff, uh, someone or some multiple people, uh, felt the need to get this out there. And I wonder how that staff is going to, uh, feel uh, going forward. Uh, I'm sure they're interested in who the new principal is going to be. I'm sure they're interested in uh, what happens with their old principal. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting is, is that the um, school board member, Joanne Lentino, brought, you know, kind of touched on that at the last board meeting. Um, she said that, you know, not only Hoffman's email, but three recent uh, teacher terminations at the school, quote, give me cause to question judgment of leadership. So and then she she went on to question, you know, what is the climate of that school now? And, um, you know, because now even the kids are, are aware, you know, they see TV crews and the media, you know, outside their school district and, and, and they're aware and, and they I'm sure they're painfully aware, too, that, you know, it is a predominantly black school and there are a few white students and now there might be an issue. Um, and so, you know, I, I haven't been able to talk to any uh, teachers at the school, um, but it'd be interesting to see w- what the morale is there. And, and, you know, I would be interested to see if the next principal pick is based on race. You know, it's interesting we're talking about a school like uh, Campbell Park because that is the kind of school that's the focus of uh, one of the bigger pieces of legislation in Tallahassee, uh, uh, especially as the session is closing out in these final days. Uh, I'm talking about the Schools of Hope legislation that came out of the House with a very uh, uh, specific set of proposals to help uh, schools that, that, that Campbell Park is an apt is, uh, example of, of what they're trying to uh, get done, trying to take schools that have been chronically low-performing and maybe have uh, 
the fixed B charter schools, the charter school company uh, that specializes in, in these kind of turnarounds come in and uh, take a try at it for f- uh, five years or so, I think the legislation says. The House has a um, – um, pardon me, the Senate has a uh, much less specific proposal. Um, and it's kind of confusing here in the last days of the session where all this stands. Jeff, do you have a, a, a handle on – where uh, Schools of Hope is in the legislative process? It's right in the mix of what's going on with the budget conference committees. The the numbers have come out now. They came out just this afternoon as to what the allocations might be. But as far as how everything's going to break down, it's going to happen in these conference committees that happened so fast over the last few days of session that we don't even want to try and speculate on individual points. But the House has been pretty insistent that they want that $200 million to go to this charter school plan. The Senate has basically from the leadership acquiesced to that idea in exchange for that higher education money that they've been seeking. And now it's just a matter of how it plays out. One of the things the Senate has talked about is trying to get some of the money to go to those traditional failing schools. Uh, The problem with that is that, you know, the House is saying they've been failing for so long that they don't need more money. They need competition. They need to get out of the way and let somebody else do this. But the House is willing, if they have to, it sounds like, to at least moderate a little bit. Maybe some of that money can go to those schools that are willing to go through some of the hoops to make their schools better. So that that model that they're talking about, letting someone else come in besides the school district, uh, Colleen, you've you've reported on a a local school in St. again in St. Petersburg where we've seen that model. Uh, it didn't it hasn't worked out so well. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, um, we actually have our own little case study here in Pinellas. Uh, there was a school called the University. It was a charter school called the University Preparatory Academy, and it parachuted in right into South St. Petersburg, which is the home of, you know, again the, the schools that were profiled in the Failure Factory series. And they thought that they had a better solution, um, and they were backed also by. Um, Remember those lawsuits I brought up? There was a settlement that said, you know, we, we want to offer X amount of charter school seats to um, poor, low-income black children to maybe get them back on track. So University Preparatory opened. It opened in a closed uh, district-run school. It was a very old facility. Um, and, and they poured a lot of money into it to, to make the, you know, make the building nice and bright. It's beautiful inside. And, um, but here's the thing. I, I believe it opened, I want to say, in 2013. Um, and, but for three years in a row, the school received straight F grades and there was a new rule, like if the state statute kind of changed a little bit that, um, if you get two consecutive F's as a charter, your charter is then terminated. But there was a kind of a, a trial year where, you know, we were transitioning from the FCAT to the FSA. So they didn't know if the third year counted. Turns out it did. They issued guidance that the third year did. So that school was three F's and out and they closed their doors uh, actually like three weeks or so before the start of the, of the school year of this school year, 2016, 17. And the school district, you know, had to go in there and pretty much rescue it. You know, they, they turned it into a district run school. It's still a school of choice and nobody's zoned for it. They didn't have to, you know, redraw boundaries. Um, but uh, they, they, it needs serious rehabilitation in the sense that these students are very behind. Um, they lag behind in these tests that are predictors for the FSA, and um, but they're they're working on it, and they're still trying to find you know the solution here and what might work. But um, it seems like the charters are actually 
more, you know, did worse than, than these, you know, so-called figure factory schools. And that's one of the problems that's come up with the criticism of this plan what, that is coming a lot from the superintendents of schools who clearly have a vested interest in the public school system. But still, they're pointing out that the charter schools that are in those Title I zones aren't performing any better than the Title I schools and often are performing worse. They also are noting that these schools are not given enough time to or money, really, to do anything and find success because if you notice that those th two or three years is is not very much time i've talked to some other principals just in regular schools who have gone for trying to make a turnaround they say five to seven years is what they're needing to see real progress that means though that a lot of those successful charter programs from around the country that would be lured to this program aren't really interested in coming according to a lot of reports that we've read Jeff, do you re recall a year when there's been more sort of charter-friendly legislation in Tallahassee? Is this the year of the charter? Every year lately has been the year of the charter, Tom. <laughs> there has been so much conversation about charter schools that at some point the the conspiracy theories that somebody's trying to undermine the public school system, the traditional public school system, start to resonate. And I am not a conspiracy theorist. I keep looking at all these people saying, come on, you know, they're trying to do what's right for kids. They're trying to get rid of low performing schools and do something different. But at some point, they've been spending so much time talking about getting more money for more charter schools, sometimes within spitting distance of a traditional school that's been struggling, rather than just giving that money to that school that's struggling and helping them. We saw with the Jefferson County school system this year, they were so poor performing that the state required them to be taken over by charter school system. And the, the issue that I'm raising here now, though, is that they turned around and asked for $5 million to help that teeny little school system of about a 1,000 students make the transition into a positive charter school environment that could accomplish the things they wanted to accomplish. Now we're talking about $200 million for what, 115 schools that they've identified as possibly needing a school of hope alternative? I don't see how it can necessarily work the way they want it to, but they certainly want it to. So yeah, it's a it's definitely a charter school friendly legislature. Well, you not only have schools of hope, but you have uh, an effort legislation to, to steer more Title I money to charters and to give them more, uh, uh, much more capital uh, funds, too, so they can buy uh, uh, and renovate uh, school buildings. So, uh, yeah, it's just uh, I, it's hard to measure whether this year is, is, is uh, more prominent than uh, previous years in terms of charter-friendly legislation, but it certainly seems like a, a, a big uh, a boon year for, for charters. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about it, that's for sure. So now it's time for us to turn away from our big news stories and look at the little things that we've been paying attention to over the past week. We're going to let Colleen go first. Since she's new to it, Colleen, what's on your mind? So um, I blogged about U.S. News and World Report's rankings of uh, the best high schools in the country. Um, I'm kind of a sucker for rankings. Um, they're very also, they're not very objective. You know, a lot of ranking systems, the methodology is kind of screwy. And, you know, I, I, there's always, you know, I'm always kind of dubious of the fact, but I do like them. And uh, Tampa Bay High Schools didn't really exactly come across at the top of the pack. Um you know, not only nationwide, but even in Florida. Um, in, Flo in Florida, I believe uh, Pineview School in Sarasota actually um, 
was the number one school, I want to say, statewide. Um, so that's what those are our neighbors to the south. And then um, if you just look at the Tampa Bay area, it seems like Plant High was the highest. So it came in at number 22 among the top schools in Florida. Um, and that school has like a 96% graduation rate and um, a college rating score of 69. However, they, they uh, you know, come across that score. I think they factor in uh, test scores and then also um, like they, they adjust for like socioeconomic uh, factors. Um, and nationwide, it ranked like 228th. Uh, other schools on that list were uh, Newsom and Robinson High Schools. They were 30th and 39th. Um, Pasco schools actually edged out Pinellas um, with James W. Mitchell and uh, Land Lakes High Schools coming in at 68th and 69th. Uh, and Pinellas had East Lake High is the best one in, in Pinellas' school district. Uh, they came in at number 70th statewide, um, followed by Palm Harbor uh, and Tarpon Springs in the top 100. Uh, and Hernando, for all the Hernando listeners, um, Frank W. Springs said, came in at 151st statewide. 151st statewide, though, not nationally, right? So that what does that put you? I'm, no, not nationally. How does that compare then? I mean, what does 151 in the state come out to? Do you know? Uh, I'd have to look it up. But for comparison, it, you know how I mentioned Plant High, right? They were number 22 in the state. They were 228th nationally. So if number 22 in Florida was 228th nationally, then I'm sure 151st in the state is probably some there you know somewhere low on the list nationwide but they're at least on the list there's lots of schools that are oh plenty yes no they're, they're definitely picking out you know the the you know by their own metrics the best ones um you know like i said you know just from you know pinellas has what 16 or so high schools and only three made it you know crack the top 100 statewide all right tom your turn go for it Pivoting to the world of higher education, I'm just going to uh, note that uh, it's an important uh, next couple of months for uh, St. Petersburg College. They uh, are trying to replace their outgoing president, Bill Law, who has had a fairly successful tenure uh, there. And they had 50 applications, and they are down to five finalists who they will be um, interviewing throughout the month of May. So we will we'll be watching closely what happens at St. Petersburg College and their board of trustees as they make this uh, key decision. And how about you, Jeff? Well, I am still the sucker for the prom story and the dress code story, and when they come together, I'm always happy. And so this this week I saw a story out of Jacksonville where there was a mom complaining about her school, her daughter's school, and how she followed all the rules to get her daughter an appropriate dress, and her daughter was still just about turned away because they stood there and measured her dress and how far it came above her knees and told her she had to leave until she cried and screamed about it. And and she said, you know, this is appropriate, but you're saying it's not after you've already spent all this money and time. And, you know, I just don't understand to, for the life of me why it is that schools make such a big deal about somebody who's looking really nice. They, they showed a picture of her on one of these websites and she looked perfectly fine. She had a big purple dress around her, but the skirt in the front was like uh, a teeny bit above her knees and and they wanted to tell her to go home. And, you know, I'm not a huge dress code person. Um, she wasn't inappropriate. It's not like her shirt said something rude or that she wore a dress that made her look like some sort of streetwalker. So, I don't know. 
Every year they happen. Every year something happens at the prom. Every year something happens with the dress code. And when they can come together like this and people can be angry and upset and the stories go viral, I just love it. So there you go. <laughs> Jeff, I think that's the second week in a row you've brought up a dress code uh, issue on the on this final part of the show. So um, I think that you have an interest in this topic. I have no personal interest in the topic, but I do believe in student rights. How's that? <laughs> That's good. I kind of see uh, both sides of it. You know, if they don't uh, have some rules, uh, it kind of goes off the rails sometimes. But um, it's that, that's a tough one for high schools, any school, really, the, the dress code. And uh, But you're right. When it goes to prom, it's like the end of the year. Let's just uh, <laughs> Let's just let everybody be. And on that note, we're going to end this podcast. If you want to participate in a conversation about that issue or any other that we have, go to our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. You can always follow all of our breaking news on our blog, tampabay.com slash gradebook. I'm reporter Jeff Solichuk. And I'm Tom Tobin. And I'm Colleen Wright. Thanks for listening. 